anytime you're trying to do something new and genuinely useful, you can't get there just by snapping your fingers. You get there by experimenting thoughtfully and experiencing many failures along the way. So bottom line, I'm interested in failure because I'm interested in learning. I'm interested in learning because I'm interested in effectiveness in a changing world. People won't change unless they're given a reason and need to change. And you end up with compliance at, at best rather than commitment. At that point, it is good to raise your voice, to convey an expression of disappointment, if not anger, and make sure that that anger is directed at the substantive issue, not at the other person. That is the key to making it work. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. One of the, the things I endeavor to do on the Connected Leadership Podcast is to bring a range of different guests, some of whom have a direct relevance to business skills, business expertise, business topics, particularly around professional relationships and how they apply to leadership, but also other people who have got interesting stories to tell, interesting perspectives from a wider range of backgrounds. And that's what we've got today. I was introduced to today's guest by one of our former guests, Noah Baum, who suggested he would make an interesting guest. And I looked at his background and, and I studied politics. So for me, immediately, his CV was very interesting. And he said to me, but I don't talk about business. And I said, I know, but I think that what you have to say is something that's very transferable into professional life. He's a widely published professor emeritus in public and international affairs, focusing on nationalism, group identity and conflict resolution, among other topics. He's the recipient of Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Association for Conflict Management and from the International Biennial on Negotiation in Paris in 2016. He's recently published a book earlier last year, Negotiation, Identity and Justice Pathways to Agreement. So this is someone who's a, a, an expert in negotiation, in conflict management, in international affairs on a global scale. In the last couple of years, we've had huge conflicts in the public eye in Ukraine, in the Middle East, as well as elsewhere. And obviously, conflict management negotiation has come up time and again in that context. But conflict management and negotiation is also something we've touched on upon in the workplace. And what I'm interested in is to understand from our guest today his experience and his perspectives on that global scale, but also what we can take away from that as individuals. So I'm hoping and sure we'll get an interesting conversation, a fascinating insight and some practical takeaways as well. Let's find out how we get on and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, Professor Daniel Druckmann. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate being here. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be asked to talk about my work. And thank you for joining us. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while since Noah first emailed me and suggested it. I mentioned a little bit about your work and how the focus of your studies has been on a global stage, looking at international relationships, politics and diplomacy. Can you tell us a little bit about the focus of your work? Maybe give us an example about of where your theories play out in practice maybe a little bit of what I know you've done, some work around Ukraine conflicts and so forth. Just give us some insight into the work that you do. Sure, I'd be glad to do so. And I hope the audience enjoys our conversation. So the book that you talked about, I'll put it up anyway. There it is. <laughs> it was actually my COVID project, if you will. I was faced to living in Brisbane, Australia with two years of lockdowns on and off. Brisbane did a very good job in making sure that none of us would be infected and most of us weren't. But I you know, kind of stuck in an apartment and I asked my wife, I need a big project. I need something that'll take my attention away from everything that's happening outside. And she suggested doing something like a memoir. And I said, gee, I don't care for my memoirs. I don't even like reading them a whole lot. They tend to be a bit puffy and so on. I said, maybe I can do something which captures the body of work and I'm at the right age probably to do that. And let me give it a try. I 
wrote out some drafts, sent it to a publisher, a couple of publishers. One publisher did grab it very quickly, sent it through review. Everything looked okay. So I was off and running. And then I did it. And I did it as something a little bit different, not as a memoir, not as an autobiography, but something called the prosopography. Whenever I give talks on this, people don't know that word, neither did I. But I had to find a word that would capture what I was doing. So what that means is that you have a body of work that you study in a historical and social context. You derive your insights from that context and you nourish that context by feeding back to it with your own work. So I thought that was a good word that made it kind of a unique endeavor, a little different than others. So as Andy pointed out, the work focuses on these three themes, negotiation, identity, and justice with a conflict resolution ring to it. And that's what paths to agreement are about. I was trained originally as an experimental social psychologist, but gravitated later in my career toward the more macro level of political science. I have a strong interest in understanding processes that both a micro, which would be like negotiation or having conversations at that level, and also the macro level, which has to do with systems and institutions and nations and things like that. My interest wasn't to think about them compartmentally, separately, but to try and figure out how to find a connection between what negotiators do and what policies are made and what implications that has for something as ambitious as international relations. So this research has also guided a number of my practical assignments when I was a full-time consultant before I became a full-time academic. This would have been in the late 1970s and into the early part of the 1980s. Let me talk about three of those projects briefly to give you an idea about application. The very first project I had, and I was quite young, and I thought it was quite an honor to be asked to do this for the U.S. government, was to provide a negotiating delegation with um, insights about how to get a resolution of a very difficult negotiation. It sounded like anything but a difficult negotiation. It was about renewing bases for the U.S. and Spain. There were four military bases. It was during the Cold War. And they had to figure out a way of getting a new lease on the bases. It seemed like it's a five-year lease. It seemed like a very easy negotiation, but it turned out not to be an easy negotiation. And why wasn't it easy? It wasn't easy because Spain attached all kinds of other demands to the, the point of the negotiation. They wanted to get into NATO. They wanted to get all kinds of grants and aid. They wanted the U.S. in particular to overlook the authoritarian regime of Franco. They wanted all kinds of things. So they attached this issue to larger issues, which stalled the talks and made them go on for about a year and a half, when in fact it was expected that two months and we wrap it up. So what the delegation did to our consulting firm, the name was Mathematica in Bethesda, Maryland, where I worked at the time, uh, was to give us the transcripts of what the negotiators were saying, almost as they were saying it. It was live. That was great. And uh, with my social science methods background, I did a content analysis of what I was reading in the cables that came in day in, day out for about two or three weeks. And I noticed something interesting happening. I noticed that there were moments in the negotiation where something critical occurred and it led to a change in the tone and the content of the talks. I ended up calling those turning points and it turning points became a major theme of my own research later on. And there are chapters about that in the book. So I did that informally. I pointed this out to the negotiators. These are the moments that you have to bring about and you have to figure out what to do about them in order to get an agreement. It turns out after a year and a half, the turning points gradually moved in that direction. Franco died in January of 1976. Things went into chaos in the Spain embassy, and lo and behold, they got an agreement, and I got a research topic, <laughs> which I pursued vigorously till now. I'm just writing my the next chapter on that topic. A second assignment was kind of like an advancement for us. We got promoted. They thought we did a good enough, the same sponsor, by the way, U.S. government. They thought we did a good job on base rights. And now they wanted to see how we could do in a much more complicated negotiation involving alliances. 
This was the late 1970s, early 1980s, and Warsaw Pact and NATO, Warsaw Pact doesn't exist anymore. In fact, most of its members are in NATO now, strangely enough. So those two big alliances were butting heads about reducing conventional forces in Central Europe. And so they, they were alliances led by, of course, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And we were supposed to do the same kind of job. We were supposed to be analysts and help them understand where the, shall we say, weak spots in the Warsaw Pact positions seem to be so we could somehow give them a strategy or give them some tactics they could use to bring about, presumably, an agreement. Well, we learned a number of things, and one of them was that the two superpowers completely controlled their alliances. That's not so surprising. What was a little more surprising is that they ended up, namely the Soviets and the Americans, they ended up collaborating with each other, and that, that collaboration actually pissed off the weaker allies on both sides. They thought they were being sold out on conventional weapons without being given their advice. So we called that, we made up a term for it, we called the bilateral two nations condominium. They had a condominium or cooperative relationship. And that was sort of the dynamics, the group dynamics that occurred throughout the course of the negotiation. We made a proposal, my colleague and I, we had a two-person team. We made a proposal which seemed to make sense to us, which was a trade of different kinds of weapon systems, like cruise missiles for ICBM, something like that. We made that kind of, it seemed perfectly meaningful to us. We proposed it to the head of the delegation of the U.S. We didn't hear from him for a while. Then he got back to us and he said, we're still considering it. Well, it turned out they didn't consider that proposal, nor did they consider any other proposal, because in fact, unknown to us, that negotiation wasn't a real negotiation. It was a negotiation for what we call side effects. Both the Soviets and the Americans wanted to stall their legislatures from making any arms reductions at all. As long as they negotiated, they would effectively stall them. 13 years of negotiating. We analyzed three or four of those years. And we were taken by surprise as well and wondered if we weren't wasting our time. In any event, they did pay us. And we really enjoyed working with them. We learned a lot and went to Vienna a number of times. That's the second assignment. Third assignment was probably the most interesting one. And this was uh, a study of the strategic arms control and reduction. It was called START. And it occurred in early 1983. It was bilateral between the Soviet Union and the United States. And here again, this is a solo on my part. I went to a different consulting firm and uh, the State Department said, uh, the Soviets are about to walk out on us. We need some help to keep them at the table. So, gee, I do what I can. We heard you did this other work. Let's see what you can do here. They gave me a desk. After, I didn't work for the State Department. I had a desk for the summer at the State Department. And they gave me the transcripts to analyze, you know, carefully, another content analysis. This time to find out what is it, shall we call it a soft spot? What is it in the Soviet approach to arms reductions that would make them willing to come back and entertain the negotiations once again. This was 1983. Keep that in mind. So I worked very diligently for the summer and came up with an idea or two. And one of them was what seems to come through over and over again is this idea of parity. The Soviets seemed very much concerned about being an equal in arms weaponry to the U.S. And they felt like they were one down. And what they wanted to achieve in the negotiation was this idea of parity, of equality. And I pointed this out to Ken Edelman, who at the time was the director of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency in the State Department in the U.S. And uh, they got the report and you know, they read it. They thanked me. They asked me to give a briefing on it. And, you know, they took over from there as, as they should have. And lo and behold, for whatever reason, the Soviets did come back to the table. Hmm, that's interesting. And they actually stayed to get an agreement. Now, it wasn't ratified till the Obama administration about, I don't know, was it 20 or 30 years later? But they did get an agreement. I don't know. I read the newspapers at the time. I was out of the project. And I don't know if it was the parity issue was the main thing or maybe a few other things. It's probably a combination of things. They came back. They negotiated an agreement. And we take full credit for having done that. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to meet. Uh, and my reward was a, a dinner at the State Department uh, or a lunch at the State Department dining room on the eighth floor. That was the reward <laughs> we got. <laughs> I, I can see your, why your wife suggested a memoir. I mean, those are some <laughs> major discussions. And I mean, as I said, as a student of politics, I remember the START treaty very well, for example. 
Uh, I'm sure there are people listening to this who don't even remember the Soviet Union. In my in my classes, uh, I know you draw a blank. I say, "What? Uh, you know, Russia? Okay, yeah. Now maybe yeah. I make the connection. Oh, communism? Oh, maybe." Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a few things that you mentioned there that each could, you know, uh, uh, prompting questions in my mind. So let me try and work through these. The first thing that sprang to mind is, you know, you talked about negotiations with Franco Spain, and I don't know what relationships were like between the US and Spain at the time, but I'm assuming that they, 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 was, they were allies, effectively. And then you've got the Soviet Union that was a clear enemy. What are the differences when you come to the table with someone whose side you're meant to be on, which in many, particularly internal negotiations, let's say a salary negotiation, you're negotiating with your side compared to negotiating with people who are aiming for something completely opposite to you, you know, where it is a zero-sum game in perspective, because it's interesting that the Spain negotiation went on much longer than you expected and that they put a lot extra into their demands, whereas it, with, with the Soviet Union negotiation, you're talking about collaboration. That's exactly right. So they're different. And it's probably the case empirically that if you look around the world for cases of international uh, intranet negotiations, you'll find that intra-alliance negotiations tend usually to be more difficult than inter-negotiations for a couple of reasons. One is that each side thinks they can take advantage of the other. That is, they're supposedly friends and they've done favors for each other in the past. And during the Cold War, they were tight allies. All of Europe was tightly allied, obviously, to the U.S. And because of that, you get sometimes, maybe not outrageous, but unexpected demands. And that was certainly the case here. Asking the U.S. to get Spain and NATO was a non-starter, but the U.S., felt obligated to go to Brussels and make the case. They didn't win the case, and Spain was disappointed. That escalated the negotiation. That was not true in either, even though the Soviets walked out, in either the MBFR, conventional troop productions, or the Star Talks. There was this condominium kind of cooperative relationship. And even when they walked out, they walked out because of a felt kind of a psychological issue and they wanted to be equals. And the U.S. kind of, I think, accommodated them in some, in some ways, or at least acknowledged that they were equals. And that presumably made a difference. So the answer to the question is more difficult usually, not always, with intra-alliance. That's like within the family versus between families, that sort of thing. Uh, so if you're going into a negotiation, and, and, and you know, obviously what I'm trying to do is, is take this into the everyday sphere, if you're going into a negotiation with a friendly party, say your boss, for example, what do you need to think about in terms of your mindset, in terms of your expectations, in terms of your asks to make sure that you're going to not be taken advantage of, but also maintain that, that friendly relationship post-negotiation yeah. as well? Yeah, good question. So I would assume, don't assume anything in particular. Be prepared. This may not be your friend, <laughs> even though in some ways he's your friend and he wants you to succeed and, and vice versa. Nonetheless, uh, don't try to take advantage of that boss, if that's possible. Uh, try to restrain yourself from doing things that you think that he may think would be outrageous doesn't mean you can't pussyfoot around some of the very sensitive issues, but be very careful because you can be fired. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other thing that really struck me, well, one of the other things that really struck me from what you were sharing about your experience was this concept of turning points. So how do you recognize those turning points and how do you optimize them? How do you make sure that you leverage them for your benefit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in our uh, academic work, we have what we call a framework, and the framework comes in essentially three parts. And one is factors that precipitate a departure. Departure is the turning point in our framework. So the departure is what changes, and then following that is a consequence. Well, what happens as a result? So there are a number of types of precipitating factors. 
Sometimes they're entirely procedural. For example, let's call in an expert or let's have a working committee to break the impasse. Let's see what happens. And if it works, that at least to a departure. The departure is that now they're back talking to each other, something like that. Or the precipitant can be an external event, a change in policy. A war breaks out someplace else. Or some kind of treaty was signed, which has relevance to your treaty. And when I studied base rights, that was certainly the case, that Philippines, Turkey, Greece, they were all talking to the U.S. about base rights at at roughly the same time. Everybody was looking at everybody else. So those are the kinds of things that precipitate a departure. A departure is something that we actually try to measure from what's being said and from more general knowledge of the context. And we gauge it as abrupt, gee, it happened real fast, or gradual, didn't happen so fast. And we usually know it more or less by its consequences. That is, if it leads to progress, can be a negative turning point, it can lead to a further stalemate as well. So how do you respond? I mean, obviously, if it's a positive turning point, you want to go with it. You need to be adaptable there. But but if, if things turn against you, and, and I'm, I imagine from my memory of, of the time, if you're negotiating with the Soviet Union, and I'm sure if you're negotiating with, with President Putin now, you can have some very abrupt departures in behavior. So how do you respond and get things back on track? So we were asked that question during the project, and we gave a a kind of a a fairly simple but maybe meaningful answer. We said, you know, time out. We we said, here's when you really have to stop, and you've got to go back to your table, so to speak, which meant going back to, let's say, Washington or Madrid or Moscow, wherever you were talking. You know, just take a break, and it can be a longish break, and trying to recreate reconnect, you know, try and figure it out, even reconnoiter, just try and review what it is that went on that led to this and encourage the other party or parties to do exactly the same thing. When they're ready, somebody blows the whistle and you get back on. What you're doing by doing this doesn't always work, of course. You're trying to convert a negative turning point into a positive turning point. In fact, if they come back to the table, we would score that as a positive turning point. So would you say the reflection, um, adaptability, a willingness to change your agenda if necessary are key elements in a successful negotiation? Well, that has to do with another big theme in my book, which I call flexibility, and you can call it adaptability. You can even call it plasticity. I mean, this is one of my big philosophical themes that humans are capable, all humans are capable of adapting of being flexible, because they have kind of a built-in biological plasticity. (laughs) It's not the DNA that's so important all the time. Sometimes it's kind of moving things around and changing things and becoming a new you. So yes, flexibility is at the forefront of negotiation. Learning to be flexible. It's a skill as well. You can do it. You, You need to learn it. And training then comes into play as being very important for anticipating these kinds of uh, events. Create a greater impact as a mentor. Discover how to find the right person to mentor you and make sure that mentoring thrives in your organization with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian's new book comes out in May and is available to pre-order now. You, you said you started out as a psychologist. Let's have look at some of the psychology of, of the negotiation. So, for example, it's natural to encourage calm emotions in a negotiation, but anger can actually be used constructively as well, can't it? So can you talk a little bit about how you can use anger constructively to get agreement? Indeed, indeed. And and I have studied that too, and pretty much know the literature. It's, It's a little bit of a controversial literature, and let me tell you why it's controversial. First off, we have the uh, working assumption that being calm is good. And, and it usually is, by the way. You listen better. You know, you communicate better. You try to build a relationship that makes the whole process work better. However, there are times when you think that the other party, putatively your opponent, doesn't quite get what you're saying. doesn't understand how strongly you feel about a particular matter. At that point, it is good to raise your voice, to convey an expression of disappointment, if not anger, and make sure that that anger is directed at the substantive issue, not at the other person. That is the key to making it work. 
So you have to know about timing and you have to know about intentions. You have to try and get your opponent to understand the intention, why you're doing this. And it's not meant to disrupt anything. It's not personal, but he has to know that you're not probably not going to budge, at least not yet. And then it may work. So there's this thing about the other's anger as well. And the idea is, how do you know what anger means? So you have to become a bit of a diagnostician. You have to be able to diagnose what it is is that the other side, and vice versa, is trying to communicate to you by raising his or her voice. And often, but not always, that can work. But you've got to be really good at figuring out those intentions before you respond. And the chance here is that the whole thing escalates out of hand. This anger then matched with anger, and you don't want that to happen. So when we think typically of negotiations, that the image I think that would be suggested for many people is people trying to keep their cards close to their chest, trying to get a sly win and, and as you say, be a diagnostician, work out what the other person's agenda is without revealing too much of their own. How important is it to actually move away from that closed approach and create an open conversation where you acknowledge what you're looking to achieve and you talk about what where they're at in an open, honest way so that you can get to that successful outcome where you're both happy? And how easy or difficult is that to do? Yeah, uh, difficult. <laughs> but it's a laudable goal. Sometimes it's more of an aspiration than a reality, and you've got to turn the aspiration into the reality. So that actually leads us into a discussion about revealing your not only your positions, your needs, your interests, and encouraging the other to do the same. So it kind of kind of goes back and forth. And there are exercises that we have invented to help people do this more comfortably. One of them is called role reversing, where outside of negotiation, usually before, but even during break periods, you actually have an exercise where you're asked to tell the other party what you think her position is and what the interests are, and then encourage the other party to do the same. And you do this until you've achieved what we call in technical law, uh, uh, jargon, a region of validity. We've discovered that what I'm saying correctly captures what you're trying to get across and vice versa. So we're now on the same wavelength and we can move forward. A second exercise, which actually has turned out to work a little bit better in the research literature, and that is something which we call other affirmation. So it's not role reversing, but what we're doing is affirming, shall we say, the qualities of not affirming the positions or the interests, but saying, you know, this is a really interesting person. We have our differences. Now, even though she's a Republican and I'm a Democrat, she's still an interesting person. She has a lot to say. And uh, then the other person does exactly the same thing. Now, that can be written down on paper and not revealed, or it can be revealed. That is, you can actually say to each other, here are the five qualities about you, the five qualities about you. And we found when you do these exercises, you actually get better joint, what we call integrative, joint agreements at the end. So that's another little exercise that works. But neither one of them are as popular as this idea of, generally speaking, exchanging information with the guidance of a third party, usually, but not always, a mediator. So this is the idea that I think the third party is going to be fair because he has demonstrated that he understands what a compromise means. So I know he knows what the equal division is. And he has also encouraged us to get a better deal than that compromise deal. And how do you do that? Well, you do it. You can use role reversing. You can use other affirmation. But you can also just simply encourage a flow outside of negotiation, no timelines, to exchange information till you fully or close to fully think you understand what's at stake and where the differences actually lie. So understanding those positions is what this about. This is about. When done successfully, and it's not always done successfully, it really is quite tricky, the chances are increased that you get an agreement that both sides can live with, that they both find helpful, that it's a, a joint agreement they agree is better than the compromise, which results in losses on both sides. 
it, it's interesting when you talk about the exercise of writing down five positive things about the person you're negotiating with, five things you like about them. And you, you use the, the political party reference to, to illustrate it because I've seen so often recently politicians asked to say something positive about their opponent sometimes on on the other side of the of the table sometimes on their own side for example the the presidential debates and they can't do it have you noticed a change in the way that we're able to put our differences to one side and see and respect the person has that shifted over the years or has this always been there sadly it's become conflated um there was a time when in our country here, Republicans and Democrats could uh, civilly talk. They would certainly disagree, and there'd be winners and losers, of course. So we're in an age of polarization, mostly or most saliently in the United States, but elsewhere as well. It's a bug that's caught on, uh, not quite like COVID, but it's a bug. And it's become uncivil. And again, the conflation is between our differences in either philosophy, ideology, or specific legislation and the person who's doing the proposing, and it's become a simplistic black and white sort of, you're Republican, you are bad, and vice versa. Although I guess I would prefer the vice versa. <laughs> From the <laughs> That's yeah. just a personal statement. But yes, it, it has been in the age of Trump. I mean, all the spade is spade. In this age that we're living in and the prospect of him being president again, things are actually not... Uh, Stasis. I mean, they're actually getting worse. Things are, as we approach the election in this country, things are heating up to a point of making us wonder whether a civil war is likely. Some have claimed we're actually in a non shooting civil war, but with all the guns we have in the United States, unlike England, this could be a very serious civil war. And so there's great worry about this. And if you're going to ask me, what, what can we do about it? I might not be all that helpful yet. <laughs> I'm trying to work that one through. <laughs> I think if you can find the solution to that, then your uh, your future is secure because it's. I promise you, it's not just the US. Yeah, I'll get the, um, get the Nobel you, Peace Prize. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And one other thing on 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 negotiation, and I guess this goes across a number of topics. But as we talk about negotiation, and then I want to just finish by looking at a couple of other areas of your work. You've talked about Americans negotiating with Europeans, Americans negotiating with Soviet Union, and so forth. To what degree do different cultures come into play, your understanding of different cultures? Do you approach negotiation differently with people from Asia than you would with people from Europe uh, and so forth? How important is that ultimately? Yeah, 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 That's an interesting question. Of course, in my field, almost all my colleagues, including myself, get culture into their analysis. That is, they want to do comparative research, so they want to look at different countries. I'm actually not as, how should I put it, uh, as much of a flag waver for culture per se. And the reason why I say that is because in international diplomacy, which is what I mostly, not entirely, but mostly focus on, you actually have a diplomatic culture or a working culture. And that's true in business, in corporate, in the corporate world as well. And you have people with different socializations, you know, coming from South America and Asia and in the same place talking at a global environmental conference, for example, get everybody, the whole world, the rainbow, you know, so on. And they actually are more conscious of the learned norms for being a diplomat than they are conscious of their socialized norms that they grew up with in Peru or Korea. So there's some evidence. It's not terribly rigorous. So I don't want to go out on a limb and say, this is how it is. But there's an interesting dynamic between those two kinds of cultures, socialized culture on the one hand, and working, or in my case, diplomatic culture on the other. The latter mod modulates or moderates the impact of the differences experienced in the former. Now, the former are very different, uh, are very strong, because we do know in in developmental psychology that kind of, and Freud had a point here, that what you kind of learn in those early years kind of sticks with you. I mean, not completely, you know, but it kind of can haunt you a little bit. 
And you're not giving up on that, at least subconsciously, you're not giving up on some of the habits and customs and distance norms, for example, some of the nonverbal behavior that came with the package when you came into the world and you grew up in Peru rather than Korea. But you've now become a professional, you've become socialized later in life differently. So it's an interesting thing to kind of think about uh, that is the interplay between the two kinds of cultures. And I wonder, and I guess this is more a question for people listening, you know, for example, in December, I delivered three presentations for for HSBC staff around the world. So one for Asia, one for the Americas, one for Europe. And I wonder if it's very similar if you work in a corporate culture in in a a multinational bank, maybe you take on more of the, the culture of the bank and the behavior of that corporate space than you do your learned cultures from your upbringing. So it may well be the same, maybe something that I could. I think the incentives are such, the workplace in there are such that you are very much encouraged to do just that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, there are a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about that, that sort of step into some of your other work as well. So for example, I was really interested that you talk about the difference between nationalism and patriotism uh, and collective versus individual identities. And nationalism versus patriotism may not sound like a natural home for the Connected Leadership podcast, but what struck me was that in an earlier podcast with Jennifer Bondrevet, we talked about merger and acquisition, and we talked about how teams who are brought together in a merger are often at odds and more likely to compete with each other than collaborate. Uh, people resent the new team coming in. And it strikes me that that correlates with your work on identity at a national level may well explain some of that behavior in terms of the the collective identity and so forth. So can you perhaps explain a little bit of your, your approach to that? I can. And it's a topic close to my heart, so to speak. And right now, even speaking tonight with my colleagues on a project on nationalism. Uh, so, well, let me just say a word about those two words and why there's a need for two different words. So we think and have thought for some decades now that nationalism is more like the kind of in-group love, out-group hate, amity, enmity sort of phenomenon, which we also call ethnocentrism. In one of my articles in the book, I talk about the universality of ethnocentrism, and we show statistically that everybody is to some extent ethnocentric, that they like their own group and they don't much like out groups in varying scalings and varying degrees. Patriotism, on the other hand, is more interesting because patriotism means you can be socialized to, to, to actually love or identify strongly with your own country without casting aspersions on other countries, even when they're enemies. So you can be a patriot. And again, the words are used differently by different people. I, I understand that. You can be a patriot and you can actually be in a position to seek peace, at least negotiate, at least discuss or dialogue with people from other countries. If you're a nationalist, less so. So again, this is very simple, but the point may easily be made, and maybe I'll score some political points by saying it. (laughs) So the Republicans have become the kind of nationalist party I'm not sure the Democrats are quite the Patriot Party, but they're closer to it. Let's put it this way. The Democrats are more involved in the world and the Republicans are the exceptionalists, the isolationists, and and always have been long before the era of Trump, by the way. So that's a way of trying to explain that difference. And what we do on a more practical consulting basis is we try to, I wouldn't say teach exactly, but we try to tutor, to help people make a transition from hating other countries to at least accepting them, to move from a nationalist stance to a patriotic stance. And it works sometimes and not other times. In the context that I was talking about, the the nationalist mindset would be, who are you coming onto our turf? We were quite happy before this merger. Whereas the patriot mindset is, I'm proud of the work we've done. I'm proud of our team. How are we going to work together with this new group? That's exactly right. And and let me say, just to get it in, it's a slight detour of our trial. I'll make it real fast. That's cool. We have just completed experiments on the opposite, on de-merging. We had a uh, hypothetical pharmaceutical con- company in this study 
where the two partners who were together for two decades decided they wanted to pursue different kinds of diseases, develop drugs for different kinds of diseases. And they argued like mad about splitting up and having their own patents. And these were, these were horrible, even in a simulation in a laboratory setting, they were horrible negotiations because they were also doing the opposite. They were actually breaking apart from their shared identity, which they had as co-owners of a company for a couple of decades. And the problems in this case of developing a new identity, which is contrary to the old shared identity, was an interesting thing. Now, one more thing about it. The experiment was done with robots, and we discovered that robot mediators, which is an aside, were more effective than humans in actually getting them to successfully agree on a, a reasonably good separation agreement. That, that's my foray into the world of mergers. <laughs> Another win for AI, it sounds like. Well, I'm afraid um, so. <laughs> um, the the uh, the other area of work that I wanted to touch on briefly is is conflict resolution, which of course negotiation is is a core part of in itself anyway. But in particular, how do you make a resolution of a conflict stick when it's likely to have involved people letting go of something that's important to them as part of a compromise, and also that the conflict would have left trust and relationships damaged. Yeah, that's a great question and one I've given a lot of thought to. So my recent research over the last more than a decade now, maybe a decade and a half, has been on a durable societal peace following civil wars. So there's a couple of articles in the book that talk about that work. And we're interested primarily in the stickiness of the agreement, not getting the agreement. So all of our cases are agreements they're called peace agreements, and they do resolve horrible civil wars in 50 different countries across time. It's a very good data set, actually. And uh, we have discovered some of the conditions that make it easier to achieve peace over the long term. And that kind of peace we're talking about is the collective macro level peace. And uh, what happens is that something needs to occur in the negotiation, and we call that acknowledging principles of procedural justice, fairness, transparency, things like that. If you can accomplish that, then you'll get a better agreement, which we call distributive justice. We'll distribute whatever needs to be distributed in a fair way, not much argumentation. If that happens, then to the extent that the stipulations of the agreements are implicated successfully, implemented successfully, then you're moving on to another step. And that step is on the way to some kind of a general piece that actually sticks. And more often than not, if you get that sequence, that path, you will get about eight years on average of peace, no more wars, at least in the society. And by peace, we mean reconciliation, changes in security institution, changes in governance, and things like that. So it's a really complex measure of peace that we look at, and it does stick in that way, but it can always break down. And then we found that if the rebels in the conflict become a political party, that is, they actually enter into the political system that they were rebelling against, and that was the cause of the war, then it's even stronger that the peace in society, the collective level peace is stronger. That's an example of research, and one of my prime interests, going from micro level dynamics to what happens at a macro collective. I, I, I don't think we've really got time to go into it, but I, what strikes me is conflicts in my lifetime like South Africa, where you had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where you had uh, Northern Ireland with the two communities having to, to live together and, and move forward together. A, a lot of that recon reconciliation lay at the heart of all of that, didn't it? As did the, the rebels becoming part of the peace process as well in the political system going forward. So perhaps good examples of what you were saying? Yes, indeed, that's true. And with regards to reconciliations, a nice little, little tiny finding buried in the statistical data. And it shows that what the key is possibly to reconciliation. The key was when groups decided, warring groups, former warring groups, to engage each other jointly in community activities. That is, they had projects and they actually worked together. That seemed to be, statistically speaking, the key. That was the highest correlate to long-term peace. So that little one of four components of reconciliation made most of the difference. 
and we do we do also talk about truth and reconciliation commissions as well, which which is not as effective for durable peace as many people think they should be. Actually, there are other things that actually are more important, and sometimes they actually lead to some backsliding because of the punishment versus acknowledgement versus accountability. You know, all these mm. concepts come into play, and they're good things, of course, but they're very complicated. I love that stat about the data about the community projects and working together because effectively what you're doing is you're creating a new group, a new bond out of previously disparate ones. And and that makes sense how people would then see them. They would feel connected in in that way. So So, creating that new connection. Yeah, before we finish up, let me say something a little bit more about that idea of sharing and connectedness. Mm. There's a very old literature in social psychology about something called superordinate goals. There was a famous Turkish psychologist, Mustafa Sharif, who ran a boys' camp experiment in 1954. And he found that the boys were put into competition and the water, whatever it was, broke down. And in order to fix it, the, the boys from the two competing sides, the red team and the blue team, had to work together to fix it. And he found that then brought about cooperation, that in fact, they felt that they could now forevermore possibly work together, even though they might compete from time to time. Well, that literature developed in various ways. And as the years went by and more investigators got involved, they found that what you got with superordinate goals was short-term peace. (laughs) You didn't get long-term peace. Why was that the case? Because it was very difficult for the boys and more likely the corporate actors and the international actors to shed those original identities. They kind of came back to haunt them and they found that they really couldn't cooperate because they felt like their identity might be slipping away. And this was also the case with conflict resolution workshops with Northern Islanders and with Turks and Greek Cypriots, with Israeli and Palestinians. Same thing, great in the marathon workshop session in California on the weekend, go home, it all breaks down for a variety of reasons, including trader dynamics, but a variety of things happen. So short-term peace is one thing. Sustaining that peace, and this has to do with stickiness, is another thing, and it's a much more difficult challenge where identity issues come into play. Sadly, very sadly, we're faced now in the Middle East with what I call total identities on both sides. They use the word existential from time to time. You really can't negotiate when the conflict is about do or die, existential, total identities. And this is what seems, among other things, to be getting in the way of any chance to get what I think is the only real solution, which is the two-state solution. We have to do something about these identities. I, I don't have the answer for sure. And I think we're on the same page there. I think that's a whole other podcast for a different, uh, I, I would love to carry on the conversation, but time and probably our focus would be against us there. Can I say one, one more yeah, thing? Please do, yeah, please do. Uh, yeah. Because it's a project that I'm engaged in now and finishing up, and it has a lot to do with feelings of ownership of a pro- joint mm. ownership of a project. I was uh, asked to be a consultant, very nice, to a commission studying the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. It's, you know, you may know that it's crumbling. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, and so there's a group of 40 reef scientists, they call themselves, and they asked me as a social psychologist to help them develop a procedure whereby we could possibly get a consensus on the final report on the recommendations. And I said, yes, I can. And we thought this thing through and we ended up with something called the single draft text procedure, single draft, used in the Camp David talk with Jimmy Carter, Begin, and Sadat effectively, but not documented very well in the literature, because I don't think it's been used very much. So we use that, which means that somebody writes a draft and everybody else edits and re-edits. It's not their draft. At the end of the process, they all finally agree on a draft. They feel collectively a sense of ownership. Rather than it being a compromised document that they were forced into, they feel as though they're part of the end document. So, and, and it worked pretty well. We're coming at the end of the process now. It, it worked at Camp David. It worked at another very important issue in Australia. And uh, so that's another thing, in addition to all the things I talked about for getting durable peace. And the other thing is something like a sense of ownership, if not pride, in the final product, whatever that product is. 
So that adds to the list of things that may encourage a durable peace. And that sense of ownership, something I always talk about, give people a sense of ownership and they're much more likely to see sustained results because they're going to buy into it. They're going to want that to succeed as well. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. I I knew it would be a fascinating conversation. I didn't know where it would go. Some really interesting insights. I do say this a lot, but I mean this. We could have spoken for another hour. Easily. But hopefully, I'm hoping that... I didn't even talk about my Ukraine proposal. (laughs) You didn't talk about... Well, hopefully, you know, I I know that one didn't work out, but hopefully you could be part of something in 2024 to help us move away from that situation and the one in the Middle East as well to something a bit more positive going forward. Thank you so much in the meantime for joining us on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Andy. It was a a complete pleasure. I enjoyed it thoroughly and I enjoyed your follow-up questions as well. I hope to see you and do something with you again in the future. That'll be wonderful. Thank you, Dan. So thank you so much to to Dan for, for joining me. I hope that you found that interesting and useful as well. There are so many little nuggets in that conversation I do think are transferable to our day-to-day careers and and, and conversations. The, the idea of uh, getting people into that space of collaboration, uh, going to, to those final points about giving people ownership, joint ownership of coming up with, with a solution. Uh, focusing on those sustainable results. And it was really interesting to hear the struggle in getting, you know, those long-term results and how we resort back to those tribal identities uh, and understanding how we can break out of that. Really interesting point. We talk a lot about culture. I am asked very often about engaging with people culturally. My answer is always, yes, you need to be aware of cultural differences and you need to be aware of cultural behaviour But actually, when I've engaged with people, and I've spoken in person in, I think, 26 or 27 countries, I've spoken at more virtually as well, I find that people are people typically, and we have more in common than we do have those differences. And particularly if I'm at an entrepreneur's conference or I'm at an HSBC or GlaxoSmithKline-AstraZeneca conference, whatever it might be, I will find more similarities and differences. And what Dan said seemed to really bear that out as well. He talked at the beginning about keeping people at the table, finding that soft spot that was important to them as well, and and much, much more. You know, it's really interesting to hear how it's sometimes harder negotiating with people that you believe are on the same side as you rather than people who are on the opposite side of the table achieve trying to achieve something different because there might be more hidden surprises. So don't go in with any preconceptions either way in that sense. There was a lot to sum up. I'm not sure I've done it justice, but hopefully I've helped along the way. I hope that you found it engaging and enjoyable. Please do share this. I think it's something that I'd love more people to listen to, as always with the Connected Leadership Podcast. And I do ask this a lot, but if you can rate and review it on the channel you listen on, it always helps us get more listeners. Whatever you do, as I always say, join us next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.